0: Hi, gang. Morgan and Isabel here to share. We are looking for a new member for the Woe team to help us edit and cut episodes.
1: If somebody you know or you yourself has experience with editing podcasts or even music and is interested in adding us to your portfolio, please reach out. Email woemansmail at gmail.com with the subject line editor pretty basic understanding of sound editing software is a good starting point.
0: Yeah we want this to be mutually beneficial meaning we'll be able to offer some compensation for your time and are open to supporting any creative goals you have and see how we can work together.
1: Again email womance that's w-h-o-a-m-a-n-c-e mail at gmail.com with the subject line editor.
0: Mail as in mail a letter not mail as in mister. (laughs)
1: Looking forward to hearing from you. I'm more again than I am miserable. And this is romance A podcast about romance novels,
0: about cupcakes,
1: about werewolves,
0: about Red Riding Hoods,
1: about siblings.
0: About dates not going the way you planned, but that it's, like, better than you expected.
1: About your really irritating younger brother who, like, knows that you like a guy and is, like, being weird about it. About fated mates. About carrying weaponry on your person. About a leather jacket
0: being a stand-in for your whole personality.
1: <laughs> but mostly it's about that person.
0: Romance novels. And... this episode is we talk about mating the huntress by talia Hippert. the final selection in our october 2021 hallow reads that was good Thank you.
1: We really went for it. We've never done this many spookies. It's like, it's really cool that like we like really went for the vibe. I'm proud of us for having such totality of romance spook-a-thons. This was great. I like, I highly enjoyed this.
0: Gosh, I just love that we got to read all of our recommendations and from last year. Oh, which reminds me, I want to shout out our recommender for this particular Text. Hold, please.
1: <laughs>
0: well, now I never want to find it because the tunes are too groovy. <laughs> Oh, it's Joanna Patinkus again.
1: Come on. Oh, Patinkus, you wonder.
0: <laughs> um, she also, uh, or they, I'm not sure, also recommended A Man of Taste by Shira Glassman, which was the subject of our last episode, uh, and a woe from us. So we'll see. High hopes. Isabel, do you mind if I read the back of the book to you?
1: Morgan, I would love nothing more.
0: This Halloween, love bites back.
1: Hard. <laughs>
0: I feel like that deserved a bigger laugh, but
1: whatever. That's it? That's, no, I was pausing that, for a better reaction okay. from you. Uh, but it's, <laughs> oh, no, it's fine. Oh, I'm sorry. My apologies. I mean, I feel like I gave it what it deserved. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Feedback noted.
0: We'll put a pin in that. Circle back. Chastity Adapho knows a monster when she sees one. As soon as Luke Anthony wanders into her family's coffee shop, she recognizes the evil lurking beneath his charming smile and fantastic arse, which is ass in the UK. Yeah, Uh, the handsome werewolf is determined to have her but she's determined to cut out his heart. Little does she know, Luke's plans for her are far more pleasurable than murder, and when the full moon rises, all bets are off. Warning! Mating the Huntress is 30,000-plus words of red-hot Halloween-themed romance. This novella contains one flirtatious, cursed creature of the night, one badass, knife-happy heroine, and forbidden lust at first sight. Please read responsibly. Ooh. All right. So,
1: why did we pick this book? Because Patinkus, that glorious creature, recommended it.
0: Always comes in clutch with great recommendations. But also Talia Hibbert. It's a short read. 30,000 plus words is a weird flex cuz it's but it was the right flex for us.
1: Mhm. We busy ladies. This is the right flex for us, especially after uh Man of Taste, which is basically like 10 words.
0: <laughs> we read Italia Hibber and we weren't like crazy about it. We read Get a Life, Chloe Brown, which is a big... It's a big darling. People really like it. I've heard the other books since then were better. Whenever people say that, I'm like, oh, but you said the first one was really good. So what are we... Is it better or is it also good? Hmm? anyways, that's me reading way too much and incorrectly into a stranger's opinion that has not been specifically presented to me. Full disclosure. No one particular in mind, that was not a subtweet. but I I I, rem- I think we said this when we talked about it. We were like, I would like to read her other books. And Isabel, you have read her other books.
1: I have. I actually found Talia Hibbert uh, while she was still an indie author um Kindle Unlimited, and I liked the other two books that I've read. So this is my fourth outing with this particular author. But she's got a. She hmm. Talia Hibbert is like John Williams, in that. She knows what notes she's good at and she's going to play them. And once you hear that main theme, you're going to hear it in every other John Williams piece.
0: Okay, I see what you're saying. So who is John Williams?
1: John Williams is the composer of the Star Wars themes. He's the composer of Superman from the 70s and 80s. He did the Jaws main theme. He's a big deal movie music composer. Very recognizable.
0: I do think if we ever make merch, one of the pieces will now have to say Talia Hibbert is John Williams. That's it. Talia Hibbert is the John Williams of romance. No, just Talia Hibbert is John Williams.
1: I think that's okay. Like a super chill, awesome British black lady standing in for an 81-year-old white (laughs) American man. What's cool
0: about keeping it vague is that I guarantee you, if you wear this baseball cap into a bar, a man is going to come up to you and be like, who is Talia Hibbert? because they know John
1: Williams cuz they do and they're
0: like what's this about and you'll get to tell them dead ass
1: into their beady pig eyes she's a romance author <laughs> hear me out i want that experience i want that experience but also somebody's going to dead ass me in a bar and i'm wearing this like i'm not wearing a baseball cap i'm wearing a baseball tee that says Talia Hibbert is John Williams and they come up to me and they're not going to say anything they're going to be like dona Dun dun. or maybe they're going to be like and I'm going to be like she's a romance author. Thank you for your time.
0: I know that this is going to happen to me and what it's going to be like is they're going to be like, hands up, give us all your money and then I'm going to pull out my
1: baseball bat
0: that says <laughs> and a <is> John Williams. <laughs> <laughs>
1: We're only doing baseball (laughs) merch because it's October and dreams are made in October. Aww. Sorry, White Sox.
0: Sports. Here at Womance, we know about them.
1: We do. (laughs) That's That's pretty much it.
0: Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode
1: (laughs) of Womance.
0: (laughs) Okay, so this book is about a gal who comes from a family of werewolf hunters. Huntress says... But she's not allowed to become a huntress like all of her sisters and her mother because a fortune teller once predicted that her first kill would take her heart. Um, And her family takes this literally instead of jumping to the obvious metaphor. But she wants to be a huntress. So in the prologue of our book, her sister is out werewolf hunting, overtaken by the beast that she's trying to conquer. But instead of killing her, He rips part of her sweatshirt that she's wearing that actually belongs to her sister, who's not allowed to become a huntress. He's like, I'm just going to borrow this. And she's like, oh, my God, the werewolf just talked. And then it turns out that our female main character has clocked that this werewolf, like our main character, main character... Uh, has clocked that this guy is a werewolf who comes into her coffee shop regularly and he has started coming to the coffee shop regularly because he sniffed her hoodie and is like you are my fated mate and here we are a week away from Halloween the seduction begins she wants to seduce him so that she can murder him and he wants to seduce her because they're fated mates yeah and that's and that's the story basically in a nutshell here's Something that's really embarrassing about me. When I read the title of the first chapter after the intro, I interpreted it as...
1: What's the title after the intro? Uh, I'm, I'm glad
0: you asked. It is the number one above October, which to any thinking person means chapter one, chapter title October. To me, I interpreted it Mm -hmm. as the first of October. So later on, when I'm in this chapter, and one of the characters thinks to themselves, Halloween is a week away, I think, is Halloween on a different date in the UK? And the amount of time I spent Googling, because I wanted to talk about why the Halloween date is different in the UK than it is in the US, Is embarrassing. Um, And I was like, oh, I'm going to put a pin in this and come back to it. Um, And then once I got to the next chapter that was formatted to above that chapter title, I realized I was a fucking idiot. I had wasted my own time and I am not. My reading comprehension skills have gone out the window.
1: To be fair, I think that's an easy one to do, right? Because I think especially as we're watching episodic spooky stuff, that's a thing to do where it's you've got the date number and then the month. That seems pretty common.
0: Yeah, you're a really good friend for telling me that the way dates are set up is typical of October. And that's why I was thinking that way. You're a very good friend for formulating that excuse.
1: It's not an excuse. It's a reason that that potentially happened. <laughs> um, and also, the thing about Halloween in the United States is, like, spooky season starts on 1159 September 30. Americans love Halloween. We love de- – like, my yeah. whole block is decorated, and most of my neighbors are over the age of 65. People are going fucking nuts on my block.
0: Yeah. There is a 30 foot stay puffed marshmallow man air lawn decoration, blow up lawn decoration on my block.
1: Exactly. And I think that because I have this American experience, it feels really peculiar. Um, Most of our media about the American Halloween is always in America. When I've watched Halloween stuff that doesn't take place here, it's like a much classier version of Halloween. There's like much less, much fewer people retching on the side of the street. Yeah. (laughs) And
0: (laughs) there's also like, no news report, like professional news people. For those of you who are not based in the United States, you should know professional reporters of the news will be at a car accident site in a full-on Halloween costume on October 31st.
1: You bet your sweet ass. Full-on jack-o'-lantern and they'll be like, back to you Brad with traffic and weather. And then Brad, who does traffic and weather will be dressed in a green suit with like a skeleton, so then he's just a skeleton when he does the blue screen. He's just a skeleton
0: pointing to the hurricane coming towards your town because of global warming.
1: And Brad won't mention global warming, but he will mention the impending tragedy dressed as a silly skeleton. A spooky
0: skeleton. A spooky, silly skeleton.
1: Right. That, I think, is such a good encapsulation of how Americans feel about Halloween. It's great, but it's also consuming.
0: I just asked Isabel if I could wear a costume to her birthday party, which is a full week before Halloween. <laughs> I asked her because I felt entitled because the weekend of Halloween, I'm not going to be going out for a Halloween celebration. Also, listeners,
1: Isabel's happy to admit that no fewer than five of her birthdays have been costume mandatory. One time, my sweet 16, we cleaned out the garage and had a dance party in costume with prizes, and the top prize was a $100 gift card. Like, we went hard for Halloween.
0: Do you think that was a celebration of Isabeau's birth? No. 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 It was her Halloween party, That just happened to coincide with her birthday. True story. My coworker, my work colleague, casual water cooler talk was, I'm so frustrated because some of my friends don't remember which friend is hosting the Halloween party this year. It's a part of their friend group. Responsibilities. Who's going to throw the Halloween party? That's great. Halloween is about trick-or-treating. Halloween is about wearing costumes. Halloween is about partying. Halloween is about crafting, mm-hmm. carving up those jack-o'-lanterns,
1: mm-hmm.
0: putting up those. My house is fully decorated um, with no less than 30 construction paper bats
1: around my living room. I have mums and skeletons on my front porch, and I've programmed my doorbell to emit spooky sounds.
0: In the UK, I understand that they kick off Christmas even earlier than us, like right around this time of year. Oh, Jesus. What you need to think about is like we've split Christmas into two segments with a really big meal that you feel guilty about in the middle, and that's Thanksgiving. And then on either side, you have Christmas. (laughs)
1: <laughs> except on this side you don't have to go home and pretend you don't drink excessively and on the other side you do
0: you don't have yeah exactly and also this Christmas that we're currently in the midst of is celebrating the
1: birth of Satan <laughs> 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 Or, (laughs) because I don't know that that's biblically accurate, (laughs) it's like when the veil between worlds gets thinner and like ghosts come out and like, you know, you can meet the huntsman. And Ichabod Crane.
0: Listen, if there is an Irish person within thirty yards of the bar where you're celebrating Halloween this year, I promise you'll get shouted at about what the holiday's all about—the reason for the season, Samhain. which is uh, carving turnips or something. So, so we find so it's interesting. All of this to say, it's interesting that we are reading a Halloween book set in jolly old England.
1: You know what I think this is? Wildly speculating here about Talia Hibbert and British people in general. Oh my god. I think they're really jealous of how much joy we take in Halloween. And they're like, we're already putting up like the holly and the ivy, which is like stayed. And like those fucking colonials cross the Atlantic. You know what they're doing? Drunken debauchery with crafts. You know what I wish I was doing? Drunken debauchery with crafts
0: glow-in-the-dark vampire teeth.
1: That's all I'm saying. It's I, It feels a little like jealousy that you would set a Halloween story in England because, like, what are you doing?
0: It's like how you can always tell when fan fiction is written by someone from the United Kingdom because they talk about the red Solo cups incessantly. And in America, it's like, yeah,
1: the party cup. Why would you even mention the cup? We already know what is there. <laughs> that is the cup that you bring to the party. <laughs> It might not even, it could at. be blue. Sure. They they form the same function, right? Because like it measures out the alcohol. Have
0: you seen how expensive those cups are across the pond? Honestly, I haven't. It's like $15 a sleeve. Yeah. Even at like Tesco's? I don't know. I haven't been in a Tesco's. But yeah, I definitely, I kind of got red solo cup vibes from some of this. I'm glad we're agreed on that. No more needs to be (laughs) said. Halloween
1: in the UK, as you said earlier, who cares?
0: So there's very specific Halloween references. She wears a costume at one point um, for her job. And he has carved pumpkins elaborately and artistically. And they're meeting up to watch scary movies, which are all very Halloween-y things. It does not capture the pervasiveness of the holiday. Although it has these big set pieces. And I think that's what we're talking about. We've got these big set pieces that are like, Halloween! But even if you watch the movie Halloween, I I think that captures the pervasiveness where it's like, it's water. Like, we don't really need to point it out. Like, of course we'll carve pumpkins. Of course we'll watch the scary movie.
1: We celebrate Halloween in this Bacnalian fashion here in the states for a lot of reasons but like spooky stuff is always happening across the pond the sun sets at 3 30 in october and like basically doesn't rise again until april
0: you think it's too scary because it gets too dark too early for them to enjoy halloween spookies
1: I just think they've got, like, other stuff going on. You know, it's, like, the Misty Moors, like, fog rolling in, like, spirits rolling in. It's, like, that that's, like, a Tuesday. You know what I mean? It's, like...
0: You think they got others... We've got fog rolling in on a Tuesday. I just got back
1: from rural Michigan. You want to talk about being spooky, scary. Sure. Or, like, Nantucket. Like, that's fog all the time. I'm just, like, as a Midwesterner and, like... Might I say that I think we've perfected the Halloween? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. Just putting that out there. Corn mazes. Corn mazes. Oh my god! Yeah, like apple picking, Ugh.
0: pumpkin patches. They don't have those anywhere else. But <laughs> right, right here
1: <laughs> in the good old <laughs> flyover. <laughs> That's such a good point. You're
0: gonna have to lay that
1: plate if you want a cider donut, bitch. We have all of the trappings, not just some of them, is what I'm saying. <laughs> and like, it's like already okay. We have the leaves. The leaf peeping. We've got yeah. the apple cider. You're going to go apple picking. It's like we got the flannel. It's like not everybody wears flannel. You're not wearing flannel in Arizona right now. So anyway, I think the Midwest. And then like everyone else just cosplays the Midwest. During the
0: fall, 100%. That's very true. Oh my God. During the autumnal season, the coastal elites are 10,000% cosplaying the Midwest.
1: I think the UK is too.
0: (laughs) I just got through watching a bunch of K-dramas.
1: I think they're doing it too.
0: I think everyone just for the month of
1: October is cosplaying the
0: Midwest. They're all putting on their car hearts to Baggins and like
1: everybody wants to go like apple picking and be in fields and go like leaf peeking and just be like so normcore Mm, exactly which is like adjacent Venn diagram to cottage core. put a fucking pumpkin on it and then it's Halloween
0: god damn it it's so true (laughs) (laughs) I'm just picturing them in all their boring ass outfits during the fall
1: Everyone's wearing buffalo plaid and like not dark wash jeans and not light wash jeans, but like regular denim jeans.
0: Everybody's drinking out of a thermos. Christian girl Autumn. Yeah, 100%.
1: And that's a little bit of the vibe, a lot of bit of the vibe of this particular text.
0: I know. She talks about how his cabin is like out in the middle of nowhere. And I was like, Really intrigued by that because I was like, I didn't know that they really had cabins out in the middle of nowhere. I mean, it wasn't really like she could walk there. So like
1: From the town. Not really.
0: Right. What's that saying? Like uh in your Euro- in America a hundred years as old and in Europe a hundred miles as far. I mean, making his cabin isolated is important because he's a werewolf. And he's a good boy. He's a good boy werewolf. Or is he? We'll talk about it. I've got to say... I enjoyed it because it seemed like there was, like, a real – this writer wasn't bringing their specific personal references to Halloween. Mm -hmm. They were bringing kind of large, broad strokes Halloween traditions to Halloween, right? And I think a lot of times when you're writing about something that you're overly familiar with, like, it tends to be local jokes get local laughs. And none of that happened here. So let's talk about the more important – let's
1: talk about Luke, our werewolf. Luke our werewolf is an only child raised by a very strong mother who is also a werewolf the aunt yeah, and the alpha and what what, 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 what what can we say about bad boy vibes who actually is a cinnamon roll like there's to put this in perspective there's a scene where our heroine Chastity unironically also called Chaz which okay it's trying to seduce him so that she can kill him. And he begins turning... And he tries to stop it as much as possible because he doesn't want to hurt her. And while this is happening, we switch from her perspective to his perspective. And he's like, it's so cute that she's actually quite strong. And it's so lovely that she's so competent. And it's so great. I'm so happy that she's all of these things. Everything about him being a werewolf suddenly becomes sublimated by the fact that he's so excited and joyful in her competencies and in her strength. This is the John Williams part of Talia Hibbert. She writes heroes who wear leather jackets, maybe have a tattoo definitely have swoopy hair and they look like quote unquote bad boys they have that vibe and then as soon as you're in their perspective it is just a gentle boy who is so grateful and pleased to be in the presence of his lady
0: Yeah, I. that's so true. Well, I've only read the one other, Talia Hibbert, but yeah, that's very true for Get a Life, Chloe Brown, and very true for this book. And I think it's important, like, as much vocal fry as has already been spilt on the fact that this is a Halloween book, it is, I think, first and foremost, a shifter novel, which I probably wouldn't have picked this if I had any kind of savvy like the person who thought the chapter number and the title was a date was also the person who didn't realize mating the Huntress was going to be a shifter novel, Fated Mates. But I'm really glad I read it because I think what's cool about this book is his subversion of what you expect. Because we talked about how a Fated Mate shifter novel is really doing a lot of the kind of like subconscious id work that bodice rippers used to do for modern audiences and what's really interesting about Talia Hibbert's take on this and like her very particular, like her really lovable kind of hero she kind of, like her popularity kind of proves the point that like maybe you don't actually want a bad boy, maybe you want a project like maybe you don't want to be dominated you just want someone to talk to you about what you want from sex. And she... She really kind of proves that out by being like, allowing you to think that you're buying a bad boy book, but you're not. And I think like, even though this hero admits to murder, right, it's moral, it's it's morally justifiable homicide, and he hasn't done it in a really long time. And now he just eats rabbits, and he knows where the clitoris is. And I think this is like the first time I've been able to enjoy a shifter romance because the perspective of the hero even when he's like going into wolf form he never like because he's a werewolf and the book does make the point that like he's not turning into an animal which kind of tells me that the author or the text I should say has like a lot of respect for what a shifter romance traditionally is Mm -hmm. and is like setting up a parameter like that's not this But that allows it to be something else. The fact that he's like part man, part wolf allows the
1: text with its respect to shifters
0: to have someone who maintains their human perspective during their transformation.
1: And that's also part of his morality where it's like not just that he maintains, but like Talia Hibbert does this really great job where he's like, oh, are you talking about Rabid werewolves, werewolves who don't maintain in the change, or are you talking about werewolves who do maintain in the change, are generally lonesome creatures and mate for life.
0: And, like, you would have never found them because they would never draw attention to themselves.
1: Right, because they're not doing that. They're not committing murders. They're thinking very logically about how they're going to feed themselves. They're very much like the Cullens of Twilight vegetarians. (laughs) Yeah, I think, like... All of the signaling of Luke as good person was really smartly done and also done in a way that like as you say makes this nod to the broader shifter uh, subgenre. I will say that like Luke is also like what I consider a pretty quintessential only child who's been raised alone in that like (laughs) she's talking about all of her siblings and he's like I can't wait to meet them I can't wait to hang out and she's like they would hate you (laughs) because you're terrible and a werewolf and a murderer and he's like I'm not those things they'll like me and he has this real eagerness about everything about her which I found myself on my left foot about it because I was like stop being so fucking likable. You're like a werewolf. Like, do something that makes me not like you. And he just, like, honestly refuses at every turn to be, like, anything but, like, a very likable guy. Like, he listens to her. He knows where the clitoris is. He's, like, very, he's listening to yeah. her verbal and nonverbal consent. And, like, she does this thing where they're, like, uh, baking cupcakes at one point, And she tosses half the batter over him. And then there's going to be a scene where he does the same. And she screams not the hair, not the hair, and our heroine chastity is black woman, and so that has this kind of valence, and he takes in that information as an ambiguous, but kind of coded white dude, and then like, just throws it on her tits, and then he's Mm. gonna lick that off later, and I was like, this feels like he's fantastically good. Mm. Do you know what I mean?
0: Yeah, he was great. I I think like, also talking about this like, coded racialization, one of the <laughs> interesting things, so he's a werewolf. Her family are werewolf hunters, but unfortunately, their previous matriarch passed away before being able to pass on all of the oral tradition of werewolf hunting and so they have a lot of gaps in their knowledge about werewolves and they've just been doing their best and the fact that this particular werewolf Luke did not kill her sister but only took a patch of her sweatshirt and hasn't like killed anyone since is very like Disruptive to their whatever world building they've done. And one of the things that are that Chaz notices immediately upon entering Luke's home is this elabor- elaborately carved pumpkins. And he says, oh, I did that. And she's disbelieving and shocked at first. And then he like shows her his carvings and that he's a professional full-time artist. That's how he makes his bacon. Then he gives her like a small walnut with like an elaborate carving in it. And she takes it back to her family. And she says, look, like this is proof that he has a soul. He has created art. And her family is like thrown into confusion. And uh, yeah, and I think think werewolves in particular, particular tend to be and it's I wrote my uh, master's thesis on fan fiction and I spent a lot of time with uh, Lupin fan fiction and how um, people are having conversations about race through these like coded interpretations of characters and stuff and I talked about Lupin. Lupin from Harry Potter. Yes Lupin the 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 teacher who is a padfoot uh, who becomes a wolf right he is a werewolf um, and fan fiction around him seems to be like a place where people do some racial reckoning and like definitely racialize werewolves, perhaps even more so than the author did themselves. That's really interesting that a creature that goes through a transformation, clockable physical difference, which we now associate with race, right? Which we've built a lot of meaning into and makes race the potent ideology that it is today. But I think it's interesting that... it's a creature that transforms, even though it's a creature that transforms, our heroine is able to identify him as a werewolf in his human state. And all of her family is as well, even if like outsiders aren't able to. And like, I think there's a lot of that like subtle work happening and like not so subtle work in the conversations around like, if a culture creates art, what does that say about their, their value?
1: I agree, and, like, I think that's part of... That's, I think, like, my part about Luke and Chaz, chastity in general. Their unironic biblical names, his only child status, her lots of sibling, youngest daughter status. This has all the cogs and the wheels, and they're all working together. And I wasn't surprised by any of it. I knew page 15 how this whole thing was going to play out
0: so i guess you don't want to talk about werewolf is race metaphor and how it's interesting
1: that it's flipped <laughs> by racial sure like let's talk more about that let's go back to that no because i think like that's like that's super worth talking about the fact that he's coded as like racially ambiguous potentially white and she is a very explicit black woman
0: Yeah, no, I said my part. I was waiting for you. (laughs) After I said my part, I wanted to know, like, your thoughts and feelings and
1: reactions. I mean, I just think, like, it's interesting. But I think because he's, like, racially ambiguous, it feels... Like, the idea that (sighs) Remus Lupin, the professor, like, that that's a space that people... Um, in fan fiction, discuss and move in around race. Like, what's weird about this text to me is that race is explicit, but not constitutive. Neither of their experiences seem to, like, neither of their identities in terms of their race, like, inform the experiences that we see on the page. And so, other than her comment about, like, not the hair and, like, my understanding of that and like the fact that that that's like a card show of him being a conscious and thoughtful person it's an interracial romance like that's the subtitle and katrina jackson actually said this thing recently where she's like all y'all are using blue aliens and you're just talking about white people and that's a bummer and i i Someone also made the comment to that in terms of the Twitter thread where it's like, BTW, it's also shifters. Or it's like, this is a way to talk about whiteness differently.
0: White people, we tend to talk about race through these like ciphers, werewolves, because we're not really equipped and like equipped or prepared to have regular conversations about race. And so I think like myself as a white person, I'm especially primed to be like race metaphor. And then I'm like, why am I reading a race metaphor in a book that is like has racial difference in it, but I'm still like Reading into the fact that this werewolf is able to carve things and that's shocking to her family as, like, oh, this is actually talking about race. And, like, I, I think that's – it. like, it could be intentional, right? It could be, like, here's a way of, like, accessing racial difference and in interpretation, right, in a way that's not – I mean, a bummer for for white readers, right? Or like a way of thinking about it. But although if like they access this, they're gonna be, you know, thinking about things anyways.
1: So like the fact that her explicitly black family had this lack of knowledge that coded all werewolves as soulless and unintelligent. Yeah. Okay. And then like it's through like art,
0: right? um that they're forced to confront yeah. like ha- a soul rather than right no getting to know a person
1: yeah in terms of like the metaphor i like i mean honestly like that piece of it a hundred percent went over my head because and like this might be my failure as a reader I just really took this text as is and the fact that she was a very and like that's one of the things I think also about shifters where it's like I think it's easier for me to see the metaphor when the human counterpart is racially ambiguous and then the creature isn't because then those metaphors and allegories feel really. At hand. And in this one, since she was explicitly black, and like, that was part of the conversation, I was like, well, this is the racialization that like we're dealing with. So like, he's a very tan human.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Listen, I'm going to beep beep that taking this text as it is, because if we start taking these texts as they are, we are going to be out of a job. Listen, I know. I like, Kensington isn't paying us to take the texts as they are,
1: is it? Fair. Like, I 100% <laughs> like that wasn't that wasn't the part that I was thinking about in terms of like what's deep and what's not and like how these other things are functioning, because like, but I think that's also part of the problem of general romance, where it's like, I don't read enough explicitly black women. Yeah, yes. And there's, yes. I read a lot of ambiguous racialized women. Yeah. But that's a problem, right? Where it's like, this text is like, she's explicitly this. Like, now we're moving on.
0: Or someone's like explicitly racialized, but they're in a completely made up fantasy world and like, <laughs> and they're just like buying groceries also. Like, you know, yeah. Anyways, that was just, like, a brief <laughs> – a brief poke at my own experience as a as a white reader and, like, the kind of, like, batshit stuff we do. And, like, just taking, like, Katrina Jackson's, like, a thir- tweet reported to me third-hand by you, like, I would have taken that to mean, like, you people are willing to write about, like, a blue alien from an ice planet as, like – the main romantic interest of your, you know, in your text, but you're not willing to write about a black man.
1: Correct. Right? Because you can't be a diverse author if you're writing a bunch of out about a blue aliens, if you're still treating their blueness as like a kind of whiteness. And so then like, you're not diverse, like, you're not even doing anything interesting here with like, Xeno differences, <laughs> like, you know, like, if you're going to use, like, some sort of... Blueness. Xenomorph more for, like, some extraterrestrial, and you're not doing anything interesting with it. You're just writing him as, like, a basic white dude who happens to be blue. It's like, well, that's what you've done. Like, you know, and I think, I think we need to be on the lookout for that kind of stuff. And I think you're right to say that, like, potentially I was reading this a little too flat. That's on me.
0: Or I was reading into something and i wasn't reading into the right thing because it's more comfortable for me to talk about werewolves than it is for me to talk about my whiteness in relation to blackness although the luke is like i think it says he has green eyes but that's not really necessarily a, a white person thing and so like yeah he's he's pretty racially ambiguous I guess what we're saying is is like it's complicated, but we're we're trying to think about it.
1: I'm glad that you brought up the Remitz Lupin example, because like the Harry Potter fanfiction that I've read that explicitly dealt with race was usually stuff um, about Hermione being black. And there was that massive freak out when they cast a black actress for um, the Cursed Child on Broadway as Hermione. What the fuck ever. She was brilliant. It was good casting. It's also all made up, you know, like...
0: Yeah, but I mean, like, I think people who were writing, like, there was just so much that was explicitly, like, racialization, like, specific... Like, they added in, like regulations around werewolf culture that didn't exist canonically and like assumptions and took his like human form as somehow indicative of his like werewolf status and assigned a lot of like meaning to physical traits that wasn't inherent and was actually you know acculturated and perpetuated and talked about it in terms of like Oppression. And like people were like to me, it was like very clear that these people were talking about race, but I don't think it was clear to them that they were. And I think like we we are like whiteness is always taking in this cult, these messages. Mm. We're not forced to explicitly interpret them, but they sit in our head. And then we were like, when we have to write about a werewolf, we're like, here it's all coming out of me now. Clear evidence that
1: I know all of this stuff. Not to diminish the race point at all, but J.K. Rowling has explicitly said that Remus Lupin and his werewolfism is an explicit allegory for HIV AIDS, which makes her decision to have Greybeck purposely infect children all the more horrific in her own canon if that's the allegory she's using and so like when we talk about how this how whiteness takes this stuff in and just like puts it into these other kinds of forms to look at it it's it's not just race it's all forms of otherization is what my point is there
0: Yeah, I I don't really think, like, whatever her intention was has anything to do with, like, interpretation of her text. And I don't even think her intention has that much to do with how she wrote it. I've done creative writing stuff. I was always explicitly told, like, you can't try to write a metaphor. You won't say anything interesting if you're trying to write a metaphor. And also, like, what is stigmatizing – like, if that's her (laughs) – if that's her interpretation of HIV AIDS and like the idea that people are like weaponizing it against children and that I mean like cheese and cheese and rice unsurprisingly so our hero Luke in spite of the fact that he like has murdered bad people and he says only bad people when he was very young and in spite of the fact that he is a werewolf I think he is very much like you said a cinnamon roll and I I think one of the most cinnamon rolly, and I'm sorry if this is a prejudice, one of the most cinnamon rolly things about him is that he is a mega virgin. He has never even had an erection until he meets his faded mate. Is this typical in faded mate texts?
1: No, I think virginity isn't... Odds. Like, I've read multiple male virgins in shifter romance. The idea that they're totally inexperienced, that they haven't even kissed other people, that they haven't had an erection. No, that is like totally novel.
0: No erection. He has his first erection when he smells yeah. his faded mate. But I have to say, this is what I'm looking for. Like, if you asked me what the rules of faded mates were, like, I wouldn't be like, they gotta bite each other. I would be like, First ever erection. Cannot get hard without the smell of the faded meat. (laughs) Cool. That would be like my thing. I... The... the fact that there's like um more of an expert like the the hard and fast
1: rule is the biting thing. That's crazy to me. That's so funny. But also like the the learned virgin <laughs> the learned virgin thing is like hilarious to me. like he's never had an erection, but he knows everything about her anatomy and like how to get her off multiple times. I'm like he's never even been able to masturbate. It's like, I feel like you should know more about your own body before you are like reading the text of someone else's.
0: I don't know about his ability to masturbate. And I didn't think about that. But I think in my mind, I would be like, well, he just never tried. And then I'm like, well, that's mm. wild that you would like. That's wild. He Like, I mean, maybe he was homeschooled. I think he is.
1: He's homeschooled.
0: He's also coded as <laughs> homeschooled.
1: He's 100% coded. If he wasn't, I I understood him as homeschooled. A homeschooled only child, only boy. So maybe that makes sense.
0: If you were homeschooled, maybe you'd miss out on people talking about masturbating. And you just carve walnuts. You just get really good at carving (laughs) things. The amount of time you have free to yourself, um, you become a full-time carve artist, carve just. However, okay, so you're like the learned virgin. I will say the things he's good at Besides just like confidence in making out, because, you know, it comes from communicating with her, which is nice. It's incredibly depressing to me that you are correct. He is a learned virgin. But the only reason I think he's the only thing he is learned at is asking questions. And that says something about our society. That, like, the yeah, like the main skill to being a good lover that would, like, be that is romance, novel, werewolf level intriguing is asking questions or listening. Yeah. And listening for the answer and then following through on that information using that information moving forward also known as communicating like nothing says how low the bar is than both of us being like wow for a virgin or for anyone he's an
1: incredible lover (laughs) she's like like for such a short book she comes a lot
0: she comes a lot but they also talk a lot and like she says she's not ready she has like also, very relatable in a shifter romance. The ones that we've read, the heroine or the he- female hero or female main character <laughs> has always been like very g- gung, like very excited, like, bite me now during sex, right? Like, I want to be, what's that called? Sealed when they do the
1: biting. In some texts, it's sealed, or in some. They have shirt. other
0: names for it.
1: I thought there was a standard name so. for it. I think it's just like you've just consummated the deal, or like it's some it's like irrevocable, whatever they do,
0: yeah, and uh God, it's gonna drive me crazy yeah she's she has a lot of anxiety around the ceiling or whatever, <laughs> like, and I think that was something that I really appreciated reading because like yeah, it's like that's a big commitment.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's forever and always with one person that you hardly know. I also like to be quite explicit, like this scene that you're talking about, they are actively engaged in a sex act. And he's like, "Okay, now we're going to do it. We're going to like be fated mates. And she's like, wait you mean homeschooled only child move all the way right and she's like wait you mean forever forever and he's like yeah and she's like wait and so the fact that it's a scene of interrupted sex as you say is like really like hashtag relatable like absolutely this is also i think a really great scene in the book about this like communication because it's not that she says anything in the first instance because he's like okay now we're going to be faded mates and then she just goes totally numb body and mind and he immediately because he's so in tune with her and is such a good listener Is like, oh, we can't be doing the thing now because you have actively disengaged.
0: Once again, I humiliate myself. They call it mating. (laughs) Hence the title, mating the huntress. They call it like in the polar bear Santa one, they definitely call it being sealed,
1: which is gross.
0: Thank you so much. It's actually a really weird reference if you want to go back and listen to that episode because they actually turn into Arctic Seals. And that's why it's called. I wish that was the I
1: case. wish that was the case. That would be so much better than The Polar happen. Bear. Although, like, it's a great episode. Arctic Seal shifter m- romance. <laughs> and so, like, the idea that this book is doing what it does well Which is talk about really relatable scenes between consenting adults and like what it means to withdraw consent and like what it means to withdraw active consent and to have a partner that you trust, even a mortal enemy. Or not
0: even like withdrawing consent, but setting a boundary. Right. Do you want to talk? We're talking about sexy stuff. Do you want to talk about sexiest part?
1: I do want to talk about my sexiest part. Go talk about it. Close of shop, alley right next to parents owned shop. Here we go. And he shows up, and she shows up there in this alley between buildings. And he's like, I'll give you an answer for every kiss. And she's like, Nope. And then they have this flirtatious battle of wits. And then he's not just kissing her for the answers. Suddenly his hands are down her pants and they're in an alley and he's like licking her neck. And, you know, they're going full tilt. He delivers an amazing orgasm to said lady and she's super into it. And she's like, you are dangerous. And he's very mischievous. Like, this is the version of bad boy who's like, this is the like, one arm up next to your head bad
0: boy (laughs) right
1: the guy who like lean right you can get away if you want to but you don't want to you know like you uh, like me because i'm a scoundrel like han solo version of the bad boy classic
0: classic talia hibbert
1: classic public sex public finger banging specifically leather jacket he's like wearing what i imagined was like a leather duster but i don't think it actually went down to his ankles. the the sex scenes in this book are very
0: good and i think they were better than chloe brown and i think there are more of them and that they are more varied than get a life chloe brown um but i will say there are good sex scenes the alley sex scene would be my favorite sex scene my sexiest part is the first scene which is very Mr. and Mrs. Smith but it starts off he doesn't really eat human food because he's a werewolf but he decides that he doesn't know that she knows that he's a werewolf and so he's like let's order takeout and like I got you cupcakes because I know that you like cupcakes and she's like okay will you have a cupcake with me and he licks the frosting off of the top of the cupcake in a very erotic way, but he's like flat-tongued and like swooping around and just kind of unself consciously doing it. And it was very like the male gaze turned on a male, which is not the female gaze, but can still be quite pleasurable. And it was very fun to read. Being in the heroine's perspective where she's getting nervous and hot under the collar and questioning her choices... Like the other thing about this book is that is actually laugh out loud funny. Like I I laughed out loud at times reading this. That first scene where they're going to watch scary movies together and she's going to try to kill him with her, but she has to seduce him first and he knows that they're fated and like nothing bad is going to happen and he's willing to like endure all for her already. And that dissonance and the sense of humor that this text has, like it's actually funny, um, which we haven't experienced uh, for a while. It's like actually funny, and something very, actually, very sexy is happening. And the all of that tension is used perfectly, symphonically. It's working on so many levels. It's like unself-conscious heat because you also have that like giddy feeling. That allows you to kind of strum on both levels so you don't feel overwhelmed by anything for an early – I think it was just – I don't know how intentional any of that was, but it was brilliant. And their fighting and his like and his willingness to endure after their makeout is just very satisfying,
1: very sexy. I think you're exactly right. I think the dramatic – irony of that is so good because like you're not only is it his willingness to endure, but she's like actively poisoning him with like a silver dagger and like silver chains and he's like actively burning and he's like, It's okay. I know why you did it. It's okay. Like can you just like move it though? Cause like it's it's not good. It's really funny. It's quite funny. And she makes
0: the choice to like remove, ugh, I don't, she she gets a knife in him and she makes the choice to remove it. And while I knew I was reading a romance novel, I actually, I was like, is she not going to remove it? Like, what kind of story is this going to be from here on out? And I think that takes a lot. I think that takes a really skilled writer for to take someone who not only reads romances pretty regularly, but also talks about them in depth and to be like, like I know the HEA is coming. And I had a real moment of like, not being of like franticness. Uh, you know, and I'm not particularly inclined to give myself over when I'm reading these because I want to sound smart to you guys, even though... I brought up that I thought it was a date and not a chapter. I think that's incredibly skillful and good and very sexy and very fun.
1: What was your weirdest part?
0: The racialization stuff with the werewolf wasn't so bad. And I actually don't think the resolution with her family was like forced or like hyperspeed. Although I can see someone saying that. You know, there is something kind of like – Leave it to Beaver about them being like, well, we've met one good one. So now all of our thoughts and theories have changed. But it was still nice to read and it still felt good in the book. I think my weirdest part, the part that did not feel good was the meeting. Like they actually like... As much as I know, like, I'm getting a happily ever after, I still feel kind of like, well, it started off as, like, even though he's a werewolf, whatever, it started off as, like, different than any other shifter, you know, I'd encountered and, like, what I was anticipating for a shifter and what a shifter – you know, who Luke was and how he was was so different than what I expect, right? Which is usually like like a barbed wire around your bicep tattoo kind of guy, chiseled facial hair motherfucker, you know? He wasn't like that. And, and a lot of my expectations were flouted. But then they still had to bite each other while they were having sex and I was like, why is this the thing that gets kept and carried on? And, like, that's the thing is, like, this is a text that subverts shifters, but it also has a lot of reverence for them. And I just don't like that stuff. And so that was my, my weirdest part is, like, what was held on to from the shifter genre? And it's like,
1: why? Why that? What's weird about the trajectory of the tension that was built so well and so strongly is like that sex scene functions as like the pinnacle, and it also is the H E A, and it's also the full resolution of their faded Nate stuff, and it's also like I guess I was supposed to understand it as like the kinkiest part of the book because it has the blood play and it's the most aggressive sex scene, and I was like. I don't know. This isn't like, I don't know that we needed it in this way. Like, I I agree that that was like, yeah, all right. Okay. That's how we're like, that's the note that we're going to leave this on.
0: I'm also like immediately suspicious of like the concept of like this particular process from shifter romances being described as blood play, because I know it is. But that existed before the general zeitgeist of romance readers was talking about blood play. Blood play was something that's that was true. in a very special episode of Real Sex in like 2011. Like, people were like, I'm interested in blood play. Like, <laughs> and that's why I read shifter romances, because at the very end, they bite each other. Like, that was not what was happening. And something else is going on but we're calling it blood play i don't think that word i don't think that word means what they think it means
1: what else would you call it
0: people who call that blood play Mm. i don't think
1: have ever been Mm -hmm. to like a Mm -hmm. fetish club Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. they've never experienced an american halloween (laughs) they know what it looks like kind of but like large set pieces
0: we forgot to mention like if this if this is your first stateside All Hallows Eve, don't freaked out, be freaked out when you go into a bar and everything's covered in plastic yeah, sheeting. That's normal. That's just that's part of the blood play <laughs> that we universally partake in. But like I, I why that? And I don't know, maybe it's like it's like the I E I don't know. I didn't care for it. It was my weirdest part. I think people just want to commit violence against each other. Erotic violence. Consumption, literalized mutual consumption.
1: Yeah. But like, why blood though? Because like, you can consume someone else and like, you can leave your veins closed.
0: You could do one of those, like, you could just wrap your mouth around their ear. Yeah.
1: Or like a different part of their body. <laughs>
0: Even think of oral sex. I was like, "Good yeah. boy, you could do silly stuff like put your mouth on their ear,
1: <laughs> or like straight up oral sex." Oh my god, <laughs> Morgan! All that said, Morgan, romance or no
0: romance? Romance, 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 romance. I think it's short. I think it's very sexy. I think it's funny. I am shocked – like this book was published in 2018. Maybe this is the book that got Talia Hibbert the Berkeley contract or whatever because it is very good. It is a – you know, it's like $2.99 on Amazon or something. How much would you pay for this?
1: Oh, $6.99. Easy. Oh, $6.99.
0: Well, is it a womance or a no man's for you? Well, like, the reason why it's not
1: $8.99 is because it's not a full length. <laughs> Isabel pays by the word. A novella. Here's a little insider baseball. I came into this as a no. I had fun, but I've read different shifters that I thought were stronger. I've read different Talia Hibberts. Like, this was better than... Chloe Brown, but I don't know that it was better than the other books that I've read of hers. But through this conversation, I've rediscovered all the things that I did like about it. And even in his Luke's unflagging persistence as only child homeschooled hero, it wasn't annoying to me when I read it. It was endearing and I was annoyed that I found it endearing, which I think is a me problem and not a text problem. And so like I came into this as a no and through our delighting conversation and the the things that we've discussed, I have come around indeed for $2.99. Yeah, fucking get this. This is a great (laughs) Halloween shifter discussion of all sorts of great ways that people delight and find one another. And like it's fun.
0: A little insider baseball, and what's written on that baseball? Talia Hibbert is John Williams.
1: Dun, da, dun, da, dun, da, da.
0: <laughs> um, I think it's a woe at any price. Maybe not at any price, but certainly at many prices. At many prices under
1: 1099.
0: Yeah. Alright. All the thoughts are gone. And thus the candle blows out in the jack-o'-lantern the smoke blows off on the foggy mist as the witch flies over the moon. And that concludes another woe.
1: Loosen your stays. But never your sow wins.
0: Woli guacamole, everyone! Thanks for listening to another episode of Womance.
1: Womance is hosted, produced, and edited by my friend Morgan.
0: And by my friend Isabel. Our logo artwork is by another friend, Mary Reichman. You can find her on Instagram at m.reichman, spelled R-E-I-S-C-H-M-A-N-N.
1: Original music by Nick Gravlin. And our webmistress is Jane Bonsack. They're the best
0: If you have an idea or just want to reach out, please email womancemail at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you.
1: Womance is a part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts to add to your romance collection at frolic.media backslash podcasts. Until next time.